1 Samuel chapter 13, the title of the message tonight, uh, of course in our series, Seeking a King, the title of the message is Making Matters Worse. Um, If you've ever found yourself in a legal situation where, where you've had to wait on a judge to sign some papers or to sign an order, you know that, that it can take some time because judges are, are busy people. Sometimes they have more pressing matters than, than to sign papers. This happened for a lawyer by the name of Jose Camacho. He ran a very busy law practice and he didn't want to wait for the judges in some cases to sign off on the documents. His clients were pressing him to get their cases closed so they could move on with their life. And he was feeling that pressure. So Jose Camacho took matters into his own hands and he decided that that instead of waiting on the judges to sign the orders, he would forge the signatures of the judges. Unfortunately, he signed a document with Judge Marina Garcia's name on it. But he failed to notice that he dated it with the date on which she was out of town. When she was reviewing the papers that she signed, she was discerning and noticed. And he got caught. He was sentenced to 364 days in jail for forging the signatures of multiple judges. In addition to 364 days in jail, Camacho's sentence included 10 years of probation. So when Jose Camacho decided to take matters into his own hands, I think it's safe to say that he made matters worse. And the same is true for us. We make matters worse when we take matters into our own hands. The Old Testament in Genesis 15 and 16 proved this to be true with the life of Abraham and Sarah. They couldn't have a child. What did they do? They didn't wait on God. They got sick of waiting on God. They got sick of asking God. And so they took matters into their own hands. And Abraham had an idea based on Sarah's recommendation to sleep with his handmaid and got her pregnant. Question, did that ever help their marriage? No, it made their marriage worse. And and, and that decision has made matters worse in the Middle East to this day, if you study it. The children of Israel in 1 Samuel wanted a king. Instead of waiting on God to give them one, they took matters into their own hands. The elders got together, cornered Samuel, and they demanded that Samuel and God give them a king. Question, did a king make matters better for them? We've already learned a a king didn't. And it happened to be that same king they so desperately wanted that made the same exact mistake as Jose Camacho, Abraham and Sarah, And the nation of Israel at large in 1 Samuel 13. He found himself, King Saul did, he found himself in a difficult situation. Took matters in his hands, in his own hands, only to make matters worse. And that's what our text is about tonight. It's what our message is about. Times in our life when, whenever we find ourselves in these difficult situations and we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. We're going to see how that plays out. Because every time, nearly every time. Unless God's grace intervenes and rescues us from it, nearly every time we try to get hasty and take matters into our own hands, we make matters worse. Look at verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 3. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, a strait, for the people were distressed. I started there because it gives us Kind of a glimpse into their situation. The narrator said their situation was a strait. What's a strait? It's a very difficult place. The word literally means hard pressed. 
They were experiencing a high amount of pressure. They were distressed. They had a big problem on their hands. So then the natural question I would ask is why? What caused them to be in a strait? Well, look at verses 1 through verses 4 of chapter 13. Saul reigned, that's their king, one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan. That is Saul's oldest son, by the way, and Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. Verse 3. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all... Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel also was had an abomination with the Philistines and the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Now here's what initially brought them into a point of being in a strait. Uh, the main reason Israel wanted a king, let's rehearse just a little bit, was, was so that they could defend themselves against the foreign enemies, including the Philistines here. That's exactly what Saul is doing. After reigning for two years, he deploys 3,000 troops. So he picks 2,000 of the best and he puts them on his team. He puts 1,000 of the other special forces they had trained and he puts them on Jonathan's team. They go to different areas and he looks at the leftovers and he tells them to go home. Kind of a sad state of affairs for those that weren't good enough to make the team, basically. Their objective with these 3,000 men was to remove a Philistine administrative center or, or, or an operational hub at Geba, which was the heartland of Israelites' territory. Saul was king. He felt it his job to secure that part of their land. And Jonathan's troops, the text told us, was quite successful. They smote a garrison of Philistines in Geba. What's a garrison? That would have been a good size of Philistine soldiers that were encamped in, in, in like a fortress or a base. They, they, they raided it. They, they were successful. They took it over. And as a result of the assault, the Israelites became, the text told us, an abomination to the Philistines. In other words, this bothered the Philistines so much that they had overtaken Geba that they had to retaliate. Now, I think the Israelites expected some type of counterattack, but, but, but they were totally unprepared for the magnitude of this Philistine reaction. Now, I hope you're studying the text with me. I hope you're not just looking at me like sometimes I look at a preacher, like I'm listening, but I'm not. Are you with me? So we get to verse five and the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. This is the Philistine response. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and people as the sandwiches on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Beth Haven. So the Philistines were so bothered that they retaliated with a combined army of 36,000 chariots and horsemen plus thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of foot soldiers. The narrator's only explanation for the amount was that it numbered the sand of the seashore. And what they did is they took over Saul's original military base in Michmash as a response to Saul trying to take over their center of operations in Geba. So when the Israelite army saw the size of the attack coming against him, they realized how critical of the situation they were in. And the narrator called it a strait. So some of them, when they got put into a strait, they ran and hid. Uh, some of them left the promised land entirely. Verse, verse 6 and verse 7 talk about this. And they went east of the Jordan. While Saul and a few of his troops, verse 15, tell us that there were 600 remaining out of the 3,000, stayed put in Gilgal, but those 600 men were absolutely scared to death. This is what's going on. 
This is why they're in a strait. But it actually gets worse. There was actually another contributing factor to the strait they found themselves in. Look over to verse number 19 of the text. Now there was no smith, that's like a blacksmith, found throughout all the land of Israel. This is brilliant on the Philistines' part. For the Philistine says, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had found a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goats. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and with Jonathan, his son was there found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. So watch here. It got, it got worse. The Philistines wisely took control of all Israel's access to metal, which meant that they couldn't purchase or collect any metal weapons. They would be limited to wooden and stone weapons, which were useful in battle, but not near as deadly as the weapons the Philistines would use, which were primarily made of bronze and iron. On top of that, they limited the Israelites' access to blacksmiths who could have perhaps taken their metal farming equipment and forged out swords and, and other metal uh, weapons from their scrap iron. So, so literally, the only people that had metal weapons in the Israelite army was Saul and Jonathan, the two military generals. I want you to put yourself in this situation. The Israelites started with 3,000 men, their special forces, the best they had. They won a small little victory in Geba. Philistines retaliated with such force that most of the men ran away, left them down to 600 men, and all they had to fight with was a bunch of wooden sticks and two swords. So the Philistines had 36,000 chariots, horsemen, and thousands more foot soldiers who were carrying weapons of iron and bronze. Is it becoming clear to you why the narrator said they were in a bad situation? They were in a strait, incredibly hard, tense, difficult, scary, and pressure-filled. And here's the truth. The Israelites aren't the only ones that experience straits. We experience them too. In fact, life is full of straits. Life is full of hard, tense, difficult, scary, and pressure-filled situations. Straits are kind of like storms and trials of life. You're either in one, you're coming out of one, and you're about to head into one. They're just a part of life. And I'm certain that there's more than one person in this auditorium tonight who is smack dab in the middle of a straight situation. I understand you aren't being closed in by 36,000 chariots and horsemen, but, but maybe some find themselves in a marital strait. Time right now in your marriage that is tense. You can't seem to get on the same page with your spouse. You, you, you fought and argued for months now and, and have a hard time finding common ground on several major issues. You, you've lost trust in one another. Frankly, you've given up on intimacy months or even years ago and you're basically enduring a business agreement with a roommate for the sake of the kids. That's a strike. Some are enduring a parental strait. You have a teenage child or a young adult child that you're at your wit's end with. They're, they're rebellious or they're sneaky or they're disrespectful or they're inter not interested in spiritual things or they're unmotivated and irresponsible. And you tried every form of communication with them. You tried sitting down and having a civil conversation. You've tried a more authoritative approach. You've even lost your temper totally with them. You tried every sort of punishment and consequence you can think of yet nothing is working that's a straight 
Some find themselves in financial straits. You could have got yourself into the situation, possibly with irresponsible spending or a lazy work ethic or, or losing your temper with your boss and walking out or lying and stealing and getting caught for it. Or it could be a financial situation that came as a shock, not because of your own doing, but because of something maybe related with the virus and, and you used all your sick pay and you can't get well enough to get back to work yet. Or, or an unexpected layoff or a pile of medical bills or a house repair or a broken down car that's unexpected. And you have no idea where the money's going to come from. That's a straight. There's relational straits, somebody at school or at work or at church or in your own family or somebody you've been close to for a very long time. That relationship is now experiencing tension because there's an offense. Maybe tonight you're on the giving end of the offense and the person you offended doesn't want to accept your apology or even talk about it. Maybe you're on the receiving end of the offense and the person who, who hurts you couldn't care less and just keeps hurting you or slandering you or even worse, acts like nothing has ever happened and just wants nothing to, you, to do with you. That's a straight. Now, maybe I didn't mention your specific straight. That's not my point. That's not my aim. I wanted to give a few minutes for the Holy Spirit to talk to you about your straight. Because by now, if you're listening with an open heart and an eager mind, then the Holy Spirit has already brought to mind something that you're in that is bringing pressure into your life, stress into your life, tension into your life, even fear into your life. Hey, everybody faces straights, and with every straight you face comes a choice. It's a choice of response. You can either make the most of it, which means you trust God, you do right, you be patient, you stay full of faith, or you can make, take matters into your own hands and make things a lot worse. What is our tendency? Well, we tend to make matters worse more than we tend to make the most of our difficult situations. I said our propensity, what we naturally do is we make our straights straighter. A lot of our times, we, we make our problems bigger, not smaller. And that's exactly what King Saul did. In verses 8 through 13, Saul is going to teach us what not to do when we're in a strait. He did two things that made matters worse. And I think you're going to see yourself in this text because I certainly did. Here's the first thing he did and that we do. Impulsive disobedience makes matters worse. Look at verse 8. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he made it into the offering, this is still the seventh day, it's important to remember, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. And Samuel said, what hast thou done? And Saul began to explain what he did. Now look up here. Apparently, Samuel had instructed Paul to wait, or Saul rather, to, to wait in Gilgal for seven days. And on the seventh day, he would come and make the necessary sacrifices and the offerings to prepare for the war. This was customary. And Saul was specifically commanded from Samuel to wait until he got there to conduct the offerings himself. But when Saul's army went from 3,000 to 600... When he only had two metal weapons among the entire army, he got desperate. 
He got impatient. He got impulsive. Every one of his 600 men remaining were scared to death. He had to do something as a leader. He was their king. And so he waited all the way up to the start of the seventh day. Samuel said, I'll show up. And so he got to the seventh day and because Samuel wasn't there right when he wanted him to be there, he said, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that when you're in a strait, God never seems to be on the same timetable as you? It's as though in these pressure filled situations, his clock runs a lot slower than ours. Hey, that's because it does. One day with God, with us is a thousand years with God. And when our clock conflicts with God's clock, here's what we tend to do. Get impulsive. Take matters into our own hands, even to the point of disobedience. Like when your marriage is in a bad place and it's been in that place for a long time and you've prayed and you've asked God to, to, to change your spouse. You've asked God to change you, but nothing seems to be changing. So, so you impulsively just, well, you just let your spouse have it, man. Just, just you totally lose it. You passively, aggressively say hurtful things to them that you've held in for months now. Never mind the fruit of the Spirit. You just impulsively disregard that entirely and you make matters worse. I've even seen the spouse get to the place where they're so emotionally empty because of a bad marriage that they disregard God's commands on faithfulness to their spouse. So they connect with somebody at work or at the gym or on social media and they impulsively pursue an adulterous relationship. And how many know that always makes matters worse? There are parents that I've seen who, who can't figure out how to deal with their rebellious child. They feel like time is running out and they've got to impulsively change their approach. And so they look around at other parents, maybe parents that don't put God first in their life. And they just say, I'm going to try what they try because they seem to have a halfway decent home life. And what they try is, well, they do nothing. Because that's a lot of the philosophy of the world. You can't make your kids do something or they're going to grow up to be rebels. And so I made them do this their whole life. So maybe if I stop making them do things, then our home will be a happier place. So they disregard Ephesians 6 about discipline and training. And they just do nothing. They let their kids choose whether or not they come to church. They let them choose whether or not they're going to attend a youth activity or attend the youth camp. They let them work on Wednesday nights and Sundays. They can date whoever, go wherever and do whatever and still live rent free in their house. Unfortunately, I've seen this passive approach to parenting only make matters worse. Oh, it may lessen the tension and the amount of arguments they have with the child, but it does nothing for their child's heart for God. Financial straits have a way of making us real impulsive real quick, don't they? Now, usually the very first thing to be adjusted during a financial crisis is not our budget. Not our spending. We don't deal with our discontented heart or, or we don't slay the false idol of materialism in our life. Here's what the first thing is. Many Christians adjust their tithe and their offerings. Of course, the, the intention is to make it up or get back on track whenever financial situation gets better. But, but the book of Malachi makes it real clear that robbing God always leads to making matters worse. I, I, I've seen... Those that get in a financial strait that, that make very, very impulsive, um, um, short-term, short-sighted career changes. 
Not really thinking about the big picture, not thinking about the long-term repercussions. And most of the time I've seen impulsive career changes make matters worse. Relational straits can, can sometimes bring out the most illogical, impulsive, and unbiblical responses from us. I've seen a church member get offended by another church member or offended by a staff member or somehow get offended because the church doesn't meet their expectation. And instead of minding the truths of Matthew 18 and pursuing reconciliation through biblical confrontation, they impulsively just get up and leave the church, taking their problems with them to the next place they go. It only makes matters worse. I've, I've witnessed a, a falling out between family members or, or, or lifetime friends over an offense that wasn't dealt with biblically. They found themselves, hey, in a relational strait and resorted to impulsive reactions and responses that weren't in accordance with the Bible's advice in Romans 12 where it teaches us to overcome evil with good and leave vengeance to God. They ignored the teaching of Ephesians chapter 4 to forbear with the weaknesses and, and the faults and the sins of their brother and sisters in Christ and they gave up a friendship or they deeply wounded a friendship because of their impulsive response. Listen, when we're responding to an offense with slander or with vengeance or with passive aggressive social media posts with hateful text messages with gossip or with silent treatment, we think what we're doing is necessary for self-preservation, but what we're doing is actually making matters worse. Hey, there's a very real tendency we all have in a straight, and it's called impulsive disobedience. We get desperate, we get impatient, we get scared, and we do something by way of self-preservation that is in direct violation of the clear teaching and principles of the Word of God. Anybody else guilty of that tonight? But there's one more thing that King Saul did that made matters even worse, because when he was confronted about his impulsive disobedience, he failed to take personal responsibility. Defensive blame shifting always makes matters worse. Look at verse 11, how he responded to Samuel. And Samuel said, what hast thou done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that thou camest not within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. Did you see what happened there? Saul blamed three people. His soldiers who retreated, Samuel who was late, and the Philistines who were overwhelming. And he claimed that the combination of these three circumstances, quote, forced him to offer the burnt offering. Blame shifting was something that if you know the life of King Saul, and we'll study it, it haunted Saul. It's going to show up again in chapter 15 when he's confronted for another sin. He struggled with taking personal relationship. Instead, he responded to confrontation with pride and defensiveness. But when I think of blame shifting, my mind instantly goes to the amount of warning labels there are on things these days. Have you noticed that? Why is there so many? Most likely because at some point somebody sued the company over that particular issue. Right? I mean, how else do you explain labels that come on our coffee cups that say caution coffee may be hot? Somebody probably burned her mouth and spilt coffee on herself and then sued the restaurant. Real story, actually. How do you explain the, the stroller warning label that says, warning, remove infant before folding stroller for storage? 
I mean, wow, like some parent absentmindedly folded up his toddler and then sued the company for it. Like, who does that? Uh, Or a child's Batman costume where the warning label reads, warning, cape does not enable user to fly. First of all, everyone knows Batman doesn't fly. He glides. Superman flies. But some kid must have gotten on the top bunk and launched spread eagle across the bedroom and broke his femur in the process. And mama came running down and the first thing she said was, does that costume not have a warning label on it? Bless her heart. Our society. Society has become masterful at blaming other people for our own foolish choices. I want you to realize this about blame shifting. It's not denying the situation. The blame shifter like Saul does not deny the reality of something. The blame shifter admits the reality of it, but refuses to take responsibility for it. Spouses in a marital strait point fingers at each other. Parents and rebellious children who find themselves in a strait point fingers at each other. Those who find themselves in a financial strait will often point their finger at God or or they'll blame the boss or point their finger at the company they work for. Those those who refuse to forgive always have some type of justification, don't they? they? They say things like this. They don't deserve forgiveness. They haven't apologized yet. They're just going to do it again anyway. It's always about they and them and never about me and I. Even now, while hearing a Bible message preached and experience the conviction of the Holy Ghost, it's possible that some in here are getting inwardly defensive, shifting blame in your mind, or at best justifying why the situation you're in is not your fault. Compare this to King David when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. King David's the one that followed King Saul. Nathan looked at David and said, thou art the man. You're the man that committed adultery and you've been hiding it. You murdered a man to cover it up and you've been hiding it. You're guilty. Did did David respond with defenses? No. Here's what David said. I have sinned. Fast forward to Luke chapter 15 and the prodigal son did the same thing. Said the same exact thing when he finally came to his senses and went home to his father. The first thing he told his dad is usually the last thing that a rebellious child will tell his parents. He said, dad, I have sinned. It's my fault. It's not yours. Listen, when we fail to take personal responsibility, we only make matters worse. In fact, Samuel called it foolishness. Look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded. You know what Samuel's telling Saul? He's telling this, it's foolish to think that any line of reasoning, no matter how compelling or persuasive you make it sound, it is foolish to think that it could ever justify disobedience to God's command. Make excuses and point fingers all you want. You may even have a really persuasive argument. But if you sin, if you disobey God's word, it's because you chose to. It's because you were a volunteer, not a victim. And it's foolish to think otherwise. Sadly, what what Saul was trying to do in making his problem smaller actually made his problem bigger. He was trying to get his straight to go away, but he actually made his straight straighter. And Samuel didn't pull any punches in showing him how he indeed made matters worse. Look at the last part of 13. For now, would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever? But now, thy kingdom shall not continue 
the Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Listen, it wasn't that Saul lost his throne immediately as king. He can continue for 40 more years. But here's what he lost, his perpetual dynasty. The kingdom would not continue under the leadership of his sons once he died. Instead, it would be turned over to another family. I'm here to tell you that is a humongous loss. It proves the point to be true that, that, that when we uh, take matters into our own hands, we always make them worse. And, and here's what is most tragic about all this. Please listen. It didn't have to be this way. Saul didn't have to take matters into his own hands. He could have put it in God's hands. And here's why I say that. Because God had already proven to him just two chapters ago that when you put things in his hands, it goes better. Do you remember a couple of messages ago in chapter 11? Paul was, Saul was out in the middle of a farm. He wasn't at a boot camp preparing his soldiers or, or somehow getting a special group of men together to be his special troops to fight the Ammonites. He had no clue about this, but messengers came to him and said, we got these people coming upon us. Naash and the Ammonites are coming upon us. We need a leader. We need some men to fight. And it was Saul that said, hey, I'll be willing to let the Holy Spirit of God come upon me and empower me and enable me. And God did that. He used Saul, a farmer, an inexperienced warrior, to mop up the Ammonites in a definitive victory that day. All Saul had to do was go back and revisit what God did in the past. And if God, once you put things into his hands, can deliver you in the past, then Saul should have reminded himself that God can deliver me today. And he didn't even have to, have to just go back to the recent past. He could have just opened up the history books. He could have saw how that when the children of Israel put their straits into the hands of God, God always came through. Like when Pharaoh's armies were closing in on Israel. Boy, they were in a strait. What did God do? He parted the Red Sea. When the Israelites faced the fortified city of Jericho, a city that no military force could penetrate, yet the city was in their way of conquering the promised land. They were in a strait. But what did God do? He caused the walls to fall. When the Israelites faced the Amorites and they were running out of daylight with which to fight their enemy, what did God do? He caused the sun to literally stand still. He extended the daylight so they would have time to finish the battle. When Gideon's army of 300 faced the Mennonites' host of armies, what did God do? He used the sound of trumpets to put them in dismay and enabled 300 men to whoop tail. All of these situations had one thing in common. God's people were in a strait, just like Saul was in a strait. But instead of taking matters into their own hands and making matters worse, they put their situation into God's hands, waited on him and let him deal with it. And God did. That doesn't mean that they did nothing. It just means that what they did, they did God's way and in God's time. Was God's way unorthodox? Like always, a rod to part a river, walking around a city to make walls fall down, telling the sun to stand still, something that has yet to be repeated in history, taking an army down to 300 men. But when God's people submitted to God's unorthodox ways and his less than ideal timing, here's what happened. God took their problem and made it smaller. Saul, on the other hand, did things his way and in his time and made his problem bigger. Which do you want? 
It'll be determined by your response. Refuse to take matters in your own hands. Reject the temptation to get impulsively disobedient. Reject the propensity to dodge personal responsibility. Instead, church, listen, put your straight into the hands of a capable God. Do what he says in the way in which he says to do it at the time in which he says to do it. Because when you take matters into your own hands, you always make them worse. And that's the message. So I want your Sunday to touch your Monday. Let me give you three words. Three words in closing to help help you put your straight into God's hand instead of taking them to your own. Three words. You ready? Number one, pray. That's not Christianese. I'm dead serious. That's got to be your default response. I never see that in 1 Samuel 13. I never see a leader stop and pray and say, God, can you give me the spirit of God like you did in chapter 11? I never see that. I have a feeling that if Saul would have asked, God would have done it. And often we stay in our straits way too long because we never ask for God to intervene. Oh, we ask our Facebook friends. We let them know about our straits. We vent to our spouse, let them know about our straits. We tell our boss at work. We wear out our, our, our fellow church members. We just never get along with God in our prayer closet for any significant amount of time. I want you to actually talk to God about your straits. Pray. Number two, wait. Maybe you'll remember this tomorrow. When you're in a straight, wait. When you're in a straight, wait. Your natural impulse will be to act. And sometimes you have to be still to know that he is God. Sometimes you have to get to the Red Sea and you literally have to stand there and wait. And if you're in a straight, wait. Resist the urge to take another step until God gives the green light. You pray, you wait, third word, repeat. Why repeat? Because it's, it's likely that, that God's clock is going to run slower than yours. And so praying and waiting for one time, probably not going to impress God. He's not in a hurry. So whether it's a marital straight or a financial straight or a relational straight, or straight at work, or any type of situation that is pressure-filled in your life right now. You pray, you rate, and you repeat, and you let that be the rhythm of your life in the midst of a straight. And that's how you assure yourself that you will put it into God's hands instead of taking it into your own. But instead of that being our three words and the rhythm of our life in a straight, here's what they are most of the time. You ready? It's not pray, wait, repeat. It's this. Panic, act, regret. Panic, Act, regret. So at the end of your straight, watch here, you'll either say one of two things. You'll either look back and you'll say, I wish I hadn't. Or you'll say, I'm glad I didn't. You'll either experience relief or regret based on how you responded to your difficult situation. I'm here to tell you, choose wisely. Because with every straight comes a choice of response. And I want to encourage you to pray, wait, repeat, and reject the urge to panic, act, and regret. If you agree with the Bible, say amen. Amen. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye.